Good morning. It's great to see everyone out. It looks like we have several gone, but we do have some visitors. We are gladly welcoming you here this morning. This morning, we want to consider a question, and that question is, can we fall from grace? Now, if you were here Wednesday, you're going to know that Will talked about a, basically talked about this same idea, but hopefully we can approach this from a little different, uh, a different viewpoint, and hopefully those will mesh well together because he did a great job. Uh, but this morning, this is a question that I want to consider, and I've thought about this a lot, really more than 12 years ago, but at least 12 years ago, I went to work at Bell Helicopter. It was probably more like 13 or 14. It's, uh, time flies, right? But about several years back, I, I started a job with Bell Helicopter, and I started the job with these two other guys that got hired on at the same time as I did, and we became pretty close. And a lot of times we would talk about the Word of God together. Uh, they were really good guys. I, I really liked them. So one time we made the bad decision that I would never do again of going on a ski trip at 4.30 in the morning. We left. We skied all day in Santa Fe. We came back that night. So it was probably 1.30 in the morning we start talking, and the question comes up, can you fall from grace? Once you're saved, are you always saved? And I'm going to tell you, I wasn't ready for that question. It kind of became a two against one thing. They believed that you couldn't fall from grace. I believe that you, but I wasn't ready to defend that position. I think about that often. I think about the missed opportunity that that probably was. And I think back to what Timothy or what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, where he says, Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He's saying, Be ready. Be ready to teach. Be ready to exhort. Know your stuff, in other words. And he, here's the reason why. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachings to suit their own passions and will turn away from, lis- from listening to the truth and wander into myths. And I think about our religious world today, our society today. If you wanted to, you could probably pick and choose the exact way that you like to worship, the way you want to worship, the way you believe in your heart without regarding God's word, you could probably find a church that would suit that for you today. That would agree with everything you agree with because I believe this is where we've, we've gotten to in our society today. A lot of times we want to believe what we want to believe. We want to think what we want to think. We want to do what makes us comfortable. And I think we're there. But this morning, I don't want to do what makes me feel comfortable because I'm going to tell you, it would feel really great for me to say, if I, once I obey the gospel, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I act. It doesn't matter the decisions I make. It would be great to say, it, none of that matters because I'm covered, right? Because once saved, always saved. But my intent this morning is not to belittle anyone, not to... Not to call out any group of people, but to look at Scripture and see what the Word of God says about this topic. And hopefully we can do that this morning. To get started, we want to just do a little background on where this comes from. This doctrine originated in the 16th century through a man named John Calvin who gained a, a pretty large following of people. And he had a lot of beliefs, but the five major doctrines that he's known for are what we call the tulip doctrine. And the one we're going to be talking about today is the P of that, the perseverance of the saints. Another word for that is once saved, always saved. But the basic idea is that once that you, once you obey God or once you 
are saved, you can't lose that salvation. And this morning, again, we want to see if this idea is scriptural or not. So we're going to look at that as we go on this morning. Now, you may be asking, why is this important? Why are we spending our time learning about this? And I think there's two major reasons, in my opinion, that we need to understand this. Because there's a lot of people out here who, who may, not, may not say they believe the Calvinist doctrines, but there's a lot of people who believe this idea, that once you're saved, you're always saved. A lot of people believe that. And if you're going to get any, any conversations with many people, you're going to find people who have this belief. And I think it's important for us to understand that. But I also think it's important for us to know because I believe it creates a false sense of security. That Will talked about that Wednesday, the dangers that come from this idea that once you're saved, you're always saved. And I believe this can cause a false sense of security in us and, and in how we live our lives. I found a quote by a man, a pastor somewhere in Sanford, Texas, and this is his viewpoint on our sin as Christians. He says, we take the position that a Christian sin do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he does, his character, his conduct, or his attitude towards other people have nothing whatsoever to do with the salvation of his soul. All the prayers a man may pray, all the Bible he may read, all the churches he may belong to, all the services he may attend, all the sermons he may practice, all the debts he may pay, all the laws he may keep, all the ordinances he may observe, all the benevolent acts he may perform will not make his soul one whit safer. And all the sins he may commit, from idolatry to murder, will, make his soul, will not make his soul in any more danger. The way a man lives has nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. To me, that sounds like I can live however I want to live, and it doesn't matter as long as I have obeyed the gospel. I don't know, that's exactly what that says. It doesn't matter the good things, and it doesn't matter the bad things. It doesn't matter if I revert back to the old life that I once lived. None of that matters because I am saved by grace. And no decision I make can change that. And I believe when we have that idea, that leads to this other fact that our service to God will suffer. If, I, if it doesn't matter how I live, what's the point in me stepping foot in this building? What's the point in me fellowshipping with you and growing relationships with you? What's the point in me going out and helping those in need? What's the point in me going out and spreading the gospel? Really, it doesn't matter because I'm saved by grace. And I can't lose that salvation. Essentially, what obeying the gospel has become is nothing more than an insurance policy to allow me to live in the sinful and lustful way that I lived before I became a Christian. That's what it's come down to. But what about Paul? I think of Paul, and I could have chosen a number of different times that Paul talks about the idea of what happens when we become a Christian. I chose 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, where he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. What that means is, is when we obey the gospel, that means we change how we live. Our focus changes. No longer am I focused on myself, my lusts, my desires, what I want in this life. I am now should be focused on what God wants me to, to do in my life, how he wants me to live, the decisions that will make him happy. In other words, living a life that will glorify him. 
That's what it comes down to. And that's a far cry, what Paul is saying here and over and over what he says in Scripture to what that guy in in Texas, that pastor said, where it doesn't matter how you live. It's important for us to understand the dangers that come with this doctrine. So where does this idea come from? I'm not going to go through a lot. Will did, talked about several of these the other night. I'm not going to go through a ton of these, but I do want to mention just a couple. And one of them you can find is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or dangers or sword? As it is written, for this sake, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Truth. Nothing, no one can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can come and forcefully take my salvation away from me. And we find security in that very well. We should. No government, no person, nothing can take in all creation can take that away from us. I think of what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 27 where he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given me given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Amen. No man can take that away from me. No man can come in forcefully and remove my salvation from me. Why? Because that's a gift given by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Can't be taken away from me forcefully. But what I want us to understand about both of these sets of verses is that he is talking about an external force coming in and taking my salvation. He says absolutely nothing about me saying, I'm done with it. I'm going to make a different choice. I'm going to go live for myself instead of God. Nothing about our free will. This is talking about those external forces, not the internal forces. And I think of Matthew chapter 15 as the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus And I know this is a little different context, but I think we can get the idea from this. The Pharisees and the scribes come and basically accuse them of, accuse his his followers of not eating with, or defiling themselves because they're eating without washing their hands. And I'm going to tell you, I would agree that you probably should eat before, or wash your hands before you eat. There's lots of germs that can come from that. But I don't believe that it's going to defile your soul. I don't believe that that's something we have to worry about. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, are you still without understanding? This is after he's already said it a couple of times. Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. It's not about the external. It's what's in our heart that's going to cause us the problem, right? And you go back and you think about what we just read in Romans chapter 8 and in John 
It's not about the external. Yes, they may throw out some temptations here or there, but in the end, it's our hearts that are making that decision whether we're going to walk away or not. And that's what we have to be careful about. That's what we have to worry about. Are we making that right decision? Are, are we seeking to follow God? Are we choosing to revert back to the life we lived before? Think about Jesus' teachings in Luke chapter 15. He teaches a parable about a shepherd and his sheep. And he says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety and nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus says here that that shepherd is going to go out and find that sheep that's lost. But here's what I want us to understand about that sheep. That sheep wasn't stolen. He wasn't forcefully, caused, he wasn't forcefully made to leave the, the herd or whatever you call a group of sheep. I don't know. What happened is he either made an ignorant choice or he just wasn't paying attention and he got himself lost. He put himself in that situation. But I want us to understand here is that Jesus wants those people back. He wants those souls safe with him. But they are in danger. Their sin is putting them in danger. In Acts chapter 20, Paul gives a warning. Paul teaching the talking to the elders at Ephesus, knowing that he's been with them, that he's worked with them. He sees a danger for them, as Will talked about Wednesday, and he gives them a warning. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. He's speaking of those in Christ. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Why? Why would you need it? Because you're in danger. There's a danger out there. And he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you, admonish everyone with tears. He's saying, I spent three years trying to prepare you for when I leave. Three years with tears. This was something that worried him. Why? Because if they heeded these false doctrines that were going to come in, that would arise from inside that church, if they listened to them, guess what? They were going to be in danger. Their souls would be in danger. They would potentially fall from grace. And that's a direct warning from Paul here. We also see another warning from Paul in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 where you see a group of people who want to revert back to that old law. Instead of finding their justification in the blood of Jesus Christ, they're trying to justify themselves through obeying the law. And in, in verse 1 of this chapter, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. It's not about circumcision. That's something that takes place still today. It's about the reason for that. They were trying to justify themselves by obeying the law. 
And what does he say? Christ will be of no advantage to you. Have you thought about what that means? What's the advantage of Christ? The advantage of Christ is that he died on the cross, he was buried, he was resurrected, and because of that, my sins can be forgiven. That's advantage. That's an advantage that comes from being in Christ. And yet, when I make the decision to try to find my justification somewhere else outside of Christ, I lose that advantage. He goes on and he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, which is impossible. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. I think we can end here. Let's just have the invitation, right? He tells us, you can fall from grace. There's your answer. But it's not just when we when we try to go back to the old law, you see, you see Peter talk about this in 2 Peter chapter 2 when he talks about those who are sinful trying to pull others with them, trying to pull others through their false teachings in different ways, through their, their, their temptations and, and these horrible sinful acts, trying to pull them away from Christ. He says, these are waterless springs in the mist are driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now listen to this. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are, entangled, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been, been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wall of the mire. I think of this. This really stands out to me, this sow who's all muddy, I can just picture it, rolling in the mud, washes herself off, gets clean. Then what does she do? She goes right back to that mud and gets all dirty and filthy again. And that's the warning here. We as Christians are filthy, or before we were Christians, we were filthy and we were dirty and we were covered in sin. And we obey the gospel and we're cleansed of that. We're made clean. How would we go jump back into that old mud pile, that old pile of sin over here? But we do sometimes. We make that mistake. I think of my dog. We go give her baths. I'm kind of combining the two here, the dog and the sow. But we go give her baths, and she's all clean. And what does she do? She goes and she rolls around in the dirt. know any better. It's pointless, right? Pointless for us to wash her in the first place. Here he says it would be better off if you never obeyed the gospel. If you never heard that. That's a pretty pretty stern warning, but we don't only have warnings. We have examples too. We see a hypothetical example in James chapter 5 and verse 19. He says, my brothers, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. 
hypothetical example of somebody walking away. It reminds me of that story of the sheep and the shepherd, right? What did the shepherd do? He went and found it. What are we to do when one of our brothers walks away and makes a decision? We're going to go try to bring him back. Why? If once saved, always saved, it's not going to matter, right? They're going to be okay. But if we can fall from grace, that person is in real danger. And we've got to be there to help them. We've got to be ready. Not only do we see hypothetical examples, we see an example of somebody who actually went through this. Simon the sorcerer. We all know that guy. Simon was a man who who tried to gain his money and his living through not very good ways, right? By deceiving other people. He was a sinner just like you and I. But I'm going to tell you, in Acts chapter 8, we see that he obeyed the gospel. He says, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, some people who believe once saved, always saved, will look at you and say, he probably wasn't ever saved in the first place. Are you going to argue with the Word of God? Am I going to argue? Because to me, it says he believed and he was baptized. How can we make that argument that somebody... Their heart wasn't right. How can we make that judgment? If they obey the gospel, they obey the gospel, right? We assume their heart is right. And that's exactly what he did. He obeyed the gospel. But here we go. He says, and seeing signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. I'm sure this really caught his attention because he kind of tried to deal in this type of stuff before, right? And the miracles and the signs and the wonders. And he sees that happening, and he's amazed. He says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So let's think of the time period we're here in then. They can't just carry around this book and go preach the gospel, right? They had obeyed the gospel, but how were they going to teach it? Well, they needed to, some of them needed to have the ability to perform those miracles, to speak in tongues, to do those things, to be able to spread the gospel and to confirm it. Confirm that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. So who comes? We see Peter and John come. They came down and it says, they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where it goes bad. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. It says he obeyed the gospel, and now it says he's at a point in his life where his heart is not right with God. He's in danger. He's in danger. His soul is in danger. Well, what does Peter tell him to do? In the very next verse, he says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Peter says, Your soul's in danger. You need to repent. You need to change how you're living. And you need to pray that God will forgive you of this mistake, of these decisions that you've made. He fell from grace. He was in danger. There was a separation between him and Christ. 
And you know, we could go on and on with warnings. We could go on and on with examples that this is a possibility. But I think that we've established that a Christian can fall from grace. We think that's possible, but that's not where I want to leave this this morning. Because the idea of falling from grace is not something that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside, is it? I don't like that idea. I don't want to think that way. But I think sometimes we as Christians, we see things like once saved, always saved, and we want to get as far away as we can from it. I agree. It's not, it's not scriptural. We've, we've decided that. But we look at verses like 1 Corinthians 10 and 12 where he says, Therefore, lest anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. And that scares us. And we go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, don't we? So I think about that idea of once saved, always saved. I'm going to tell you one thing about this idea and people who believe it. They're confident in their salvation. They're confident in their salvation. Saved by grace alone. They've obeyed the gospel. They, they don't have anything to worry about. But the fact is, is their evidence is based on emotion. Emotion and feeling. It's not scriptural. That idea that once you're saved, you can live however you want. It's not scriptural. We can't find it. It's based on that, that, fa- that, that emotion and feeling. And it ignores God's word. It ignores what the warnings that we've read this morning. It ignores that all those things that Paul talked about when you're supposed to change how you live and be a new person. It ignores all those things. But yet, we want to get so far away from that that we go to this point where we lack confidence in our salvation. Where we get this idea in our head that maybe I'm not doing enough. Maybe I'm not a good enough person. We lack confidence in our own salvation. And I'm going to tell you that many who believe that, the first thing they're going to tell you if you say you don't believe that is that you don't have faith. You don't have a strong faith. And if we go to that point where we think that we can earn our salvation through our works and how we live and I'm going to do all these great things so God is going to be proud of me. Are we any better off? Because we'll never work our way into heaven. That's not something we will ever earn. What we have to find is that middle ground. And understanding that we are saved by grace. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected, and because of that, the blood cleanses us of our sins. We've got to find that that, that understanding that we're saved by grace, but it's through our faith in him. And understanding that, again, going back to what Paul said, that our life is to change. Our focus has to change. And I think we need to understand that we can have confidence in our salvation. I want us to leave here knowing that we can have confidence in our salvation. And I think Paul is the perfect example of that. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul is about to, his life is coming to an end. But I want you to hear the faith, the confidence that he has in his salvation at this moment. In verse 6 he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. 
And not only to me, but also to all those who loved his appearing. Confidence. He knows. He knows what's going to happen when he dies. Why? Because he trusts in the promise of God. He trusts in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. He, he has faith in that. He trusts in that. But the fact is, is he also understood that he could fall from grace. He understood that. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 26. He says, so I do, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Why? Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He understands there's a danger there. He understands there's a possibility. So how can you have faith and confidence knowing that you can fall from grace? Where do you gain that from? Now, I talked to Jason a little bit about this, and he said it perfectly. While falling from grace is a possibility, it's not a probability. And that's the truth. Because we can have confidence in our salvation. But some would argue, well, he's, he's an apostle. He's different than me. I tell you, there are apostles that made bad decisions. You look at Judas. Judas sold the Savior for a few pieces of silver and then went and took his own life. You can read in Galatians about Paul basically gets after Peter for his sin. These men, because they were apostles, weren't immune to sin. The fact is, as Christians, we're going to continue to make mistakes. We're going to continue to sin. But does that mean we can't have confidence? I don't think so. If we look at 1 John 1 and verse 8, it says, if we, he's speaking to Christians here, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That takes me back to Simon, doesn't it? What did Simon do? He repented and he prayed. He asked Peter to pray for him, pray for forgiveness of what he's done. The fact is, as Christians, we're going to make mistakes, we're going to sin. But does that mean we can't have confidence in our salvation? Absolutely not. Going back to what Paul, Paul wrote here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see confidence, and I believe this is why. Paul has confidence because he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He fought the good fight, he finished the race, he kept the faith. And because of that, he could have confidence in his salvation. He could know that once he left this earth, even though it was a possibility that he could fall from grace, it wasn't. if he was dedicated to God, it wasn't going to happen. He was confident in that. The fact is, is Paul chose to continue on. He didn't give up after he sinned, saying, well, I sinned, I'm back to where I was. He didn't quit. When he sinned, he worked to correct that sin. He didn't change his focus. And that's the difference. We can fall from grace when we willfully, as, as Will talked about Wednesday in Hebrews, when we willfully decide we are going to live a life of sin. And we give ourselves to that sin. We can fall from grace. But the fact is, if we're striving to please God, if we're striving to live a life for him and striving to glorify him in the way that we live, we're going to be okay. And we can have confidence in that salvation. And that's the big difference here. 
I think of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am foremost. It's not past tense. He understands he's a sinner. He understands that he needs the blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul was that perfect example of somebody who didn't deserve the grace of God, but yet through the blood of Jesus Christ, he was able to have that, that forgiveness. And you think about what he says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. He says, but God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If God loved us enough that while we were his enemies, while we were separated from him, to send his son to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins, we can have confidence knowing that being his child, that blood continues to cover our sin. And we can have confidence in that and faith in that. And we can go to our grave knowing, just like Paul, that we're going to be okay. And we can have confidence in that salvation. But it's all about living by faith. That understanding that I can't just go back and live however I want. I can't just revert back to that old person, but I can strive to do my best each and every day by fighting that good fight, finishing the race, keeping the faith, living a life dedicated to God. And I can have confidence knowing that if I make a mistake, I'm going to be okay. That blood continues to cover me. If I live a life to glorify Him and to show love to Him. And I think of John 14, verse 15, where He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We have to strive to live for Him. Strive to do his will. Live by faith. And because of that, we can have confidence in our salvation this morning. I want to close with Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. Because it's not about our works. It's not about what we do. It's about the blood of Jesus Christ. It's about the sacrifice that was made for us. Titus, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I love this verse. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, you can have access to that confidence, knowing that Christ died for you, knowing that he bled on the cross, that he was buried, that he was resurrected. And because of that, 
again, you can have confidence knowing that you can be with him for eternity. If you've never obeyed the gospel, we encourage you to do that this morning. We can help you with that. If you're here this morning and you have struggled, maybe you feel like you've walked away. Maybe you feel like you've separated yourself from God. You can have confidence. Again, we can pray for you. We can pray with you. Maybe you just need the prayers of the church, the support of the church. We can help you with that if you come to the front as we stand and sing.